Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to Faster, the Dr. Hutch podcast supported by Cycling Weekly. I'm Michael Hutchinson, also known as Dr. Hutch, and I'm a former pro road rider and national time trial champion. This time, I'm talking to Sir Chris Hoy. It was really down to the fact that that London had just won the the bid for 2012, and and that was the big draw for me, was keeping going to try and make it to London. And I thought, well, if it had been anywhere else, there was a good chance I might just have said, you know what? I'm happy with what I've got, thank you very much. Sir Chris has won an awful lot. Six Olympic golds, 11 world championships, and some other bits and pieces that for any of the rest of us would have been a career in themselves. As a bike racer, he's always been very analytical. He takes his sport seriously. He wants to know how it works, and he wants to know how to do it better. I had to do homework, and I used to sit and analyze videos. So I'd go home at the end of training, and you know, you'd have Scott Gardner or Joffy or whoever the you know the, the sports performance analyst would be at the time would, would would give you access to these thousands of hours of video footage of your rivals and I would sit and watch them and you know learn what made them successful. Another reason I wanted to talk to him is that his discipline of sprinting is very different from the racing I did and from the racing and riding that most of us do. You look at the Kieran and it can be quite overwhelming with the number of variables, a number of different tactics, a number of things that can happen in a race. How on earth do you break it down? The forces involved are huge. For an endurance rider like me, they're almost incomprehensible. Most of us, in half-decent shape, might hit a peak sprint effort of maybe 1,200 watts. For a road race sprinter, it's probably not much more than 1,400 watts. For a track sprinter like Sir Chris, it can be more than 2,500 watts. If you're a true sprinter, if you have a high percentage of fast-twitch muscle fibres that you're genetically born with, if you're have that capacity to do that damage, then then you understand. But if you don't, then you never really quite get get to that whole world of pain. And that means almost everything about how they train and what they do is different from what most of us are used to. Chris, the first time we met was I came up to train with the squad in Manchester because Simon Jones was casting about for emergency team pursuiters um, and formed the, and as it turned out, demented notion that I might suit. Um, and the thing that astonished me about it, watching you, and at that point it would have been you and Craig McLean and Jason Queeley training together, was you know, as an endurance rider, I would get on the track, I would do maybe a 10 or 15 minute warm up on my own, on the black line. You and the sprint guys would be cruising around up on the, um, up on the stairs line behind the bike, much slower than I was going, twiddling away, no kind of watts at all, 
And then you'd come down and sit about, do nothing, have a sandwich, sit about for 20 minutes, get back on the track, do a single jump from behind the bike. Yeah, maybe 15 pedal strokes. And then you'd come back down to the track center and you'd sit about for another half an hour and then you'd get back up and do the same thing. At the end of three hours of the three hours of this, I'd have ridden about 20 kilometers. And you probably, if you added up everything you'd done, it might be half a lap of the track. Yeah, I mean, a slight exaggeration, but yes, essentially <laughs> sprint training and, and you kind of learn that quite early on and you're, well, if you've got a proper coach, they'll, they'll explain it to you. But if you kind of learn through trial and error, sprint training is all about quality. It's about truly getting as close to your 100% effort as you can um, because that's where the adaptation takes place. If you if you train at 95%, um, your body isn't fully stressed and therefore it doesn't adapt, doesn't change, it doesn't have a new stimulus to cause that that training response. So um, yeah, most of the training, well, depending on what type of training, you're, you're kind of describing like a, be a flying effort or a speed session where you'd be doing, you could be just doing flying 100 meter efforts. So you do four of those in a session usually it'd be two flying ones and then a flying two flying twos at the end. So a total 600 meters of, of all out effort. But in that time, you'd be hitting peaks of 2,500 watts and you would, you know, enough torque to, or more torque than a, a Ferrari V12 um, engine can produce. So you'd be, you'd be doing these very, very short, very intense bursts of effort that cause the, that training stimulus to, to, to improve and get better. But it's so alien if you're used to, because most people are endurance riders. I mean, there, there is no Kieran racing on Zwift as far as I can see. And I'm not sure for, there not are pe- for the moment, but I'm pushing for that. I am, <laughs> I am, I've been telling them since day one on Zwift. So I do, I do work with Zwift now, and I've been trying to convince them that the merits of creating a velodrome. And then you can sign in, you know, you log on to Zwift, and you could do Kieran racing, you could do pursuiting, you could do sprinting. And, of course, you can't have, you know, the, 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 you can't steer it. You can't have the actual pure technical element but you could have proper races and and the whole point of it would be to try and draw out this this true maximal effort from people because often it's people struggle to do maximal efforts in training but you could do that in a in a little competitive racing environment but anyway sorry but, I'm it's, digressing. It's, but, but, it's, but it's kind of fascinating because i'm sure there are sprinters out there who will never discover that's what they are because the normal default is um the normal default is endurance riding um, and it's why it's so different. I think a lot of athletes or a lot of cyclists will traditionally came into the sport through a local cycling club. You do your local club 10, you might get into road racing, you might do time trialing, but, but you know, the only opportunity you have to see if you're any good at sprinting is sprinting for a 30 sign or a club run, or then you become the sprinter in the, in your club and you ride road races and they try and get you to the end of the race to win flat road stages or you do crits or things like that. But it's unless you live near a velodrome, or in, in the historically, the sort of, unless you were near a velodrome and you had the access to it and you tried it and you realised actually, um, I quite like this. I'm quite good at it. Then you'd be lost to the sport and, and you'd be training in a way that would be fighting against your 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 fast twitch potential. Because the more you do of the endurance, the more you do of the long efforts, the more you're kind of battering your 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 fast twitch muscle fibres on the head. So it's. Uh, and that's why a lot of the athletes come from different sports and they come from power sports and, and you know, they've had a history of doing things explosively and powerfully and, and, and not thousands of hours of slow, steady miles. So when you're kind of, what, what, what was a kind of a key, the, the key sessions on the track that, that you were trying to build, always build around in a, in a week, say? So if you, if you think about it in a neural overload um, sliding scale, the most the newly demanding exercise you can do is like a one a one repetition maximum lift in the gym so a single rep with the most weight you can stick on the bar full squat 
that that would be requiring absolute maximal neural um, demand, if you like. I'm going to step away from Sir Chris for just a second here, because this is the area where sprint training really diverges from endurance. In endurance, gym work has historically been almost optional. In sprinting, the gym is where a huge amount of the hard work gets done, and it can feel a long way from cycling. I was looking for a guide to how it all works, so I asked Medi Cordy, who's the coach to the all-conquering Dutch sprint team, about what goes on in the gym and how it relates to bike riding. So in the gym, you have various lifts uh, and exercises. So um, in powerlifting, oddly, uh, is the back squat and the deadlift. But ironically, they are strength lifts rather than power lifts. So they just, just focus on torque production. They are the, the main ones that the, the default sprinters use. And I've seen that if you generally get better at that and you're relatively good at sprinting, your sprinting ability or peak power improves. The other lifts like yeah. knee extensors or hamstring curls or uh, the weightlifting exercises like cleans and snatches, you know, I've seen people who are good at that, but not good sprinters. So it's it all pretty much comes down to strength development. And there are other modalities to get strong. So one of the, the well, this is not a puff piece, by the way, but my, my research is uh, looked at other alternatives. And one of them is, you know, you can do um, sort of isometric or quasi-isometric cycling specific strength training on a bike. And that's like another Isometric being? You can't move the crank. So it's not dynamic, it's just... Static, yeah. A sort of a, a, a static... Yeah, yeah. To use the, to use the technical noise. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, yeah, was, that's really well put, actually. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I might use that next time. I'll credit you, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but but the reason why isometric, or, as you said, was, was, is useful is because when it's dynamic and concentric, and concentric is when you're pedaling a bike, um, mm. your, your muscles are short and they don't lengthen when they contract you can actually put out 10 to 20% more torque or, or force out. So actually you're practicing over strength, if that makes sense, of the actual task. It's just basically trying to get as strong as possible and trying to translate that on the bike. Maybe the next type of session would be like a standing start session on the bike. So you're only doing a standing start for a quarter lap or a half lap. So seven seconds up to maybe 10 seconds. So really short effort, maximal torque, you know, it's not the power doesn't come in until the end of the effort. The first few bits, all about torque, all about force production, that neural element. The next one down the sliding scale would be, a, you know, a flying hundred, a speed power, you know, a, a sprint effort where you still have to build up the power and then you go and the whole thing might take 30 seconds. And then you've got longer sessions like the fly, you know, flying 500s, rolling 500s, which are about 25 to 30 seconds. And that brings in. You know, if you think about your components of fitness, you've got your ATP, CP system, your, your short-term, absolute short-term um, energy, which is jumping, throwing, you know, an explosive movement that you do once. That's, in, in our world, that's, that's not much more than a couple of pedal revs, that's really. That's literally, you know, yeah, you're talking less than five seconds of effort. So a true peak power. If you do if you do a sprint on a stationary bike, on a watt bike or a turbo, you will only hit peak power for a second and a half or two seconds maximum, and then it will come down. It doesn't matter who you are. And if you're if you're holding it for longer, then it's not a true peak that you've hit, or you haven't hit your true peak. Um, so that that is a very very short term um, energy system, and that relies on pre-stored. That's your creatine phosphate system. That's that's stuff that your ATP that's in your muscles. And then any longer than that, and then it starts going into your 
your anaerobic other anaerobic systems which you know it's it's a combination of whether you can um, deal with the byproducts the lactate that you're producing or it's it's about how much you know glycogens in the muscles to start off with um, and that will be you know an effort that will last up to whatever over a minute um, in theory but the, the efforts we would do would range from maximal you know strength work in the gym and um, torque power uh, torque and force production for starts a bit more speed with a bit more higher power in the flying efforts and then up to maybe 30 seconds and you would also do you know interval sessions in the lab where you would do 30 seconds on minute off times four and do two sets of that and that sounds fairly innocuous doesn't sound that bad you think well that's only like two minutes of effort per set but the damage you can do and for those who are into the sort of the numbers you know you're talking about hitting um, lactic acid or lactate levels in your blood of 22 23 millimoles per liter of lactate which is it, to give you a, you know it, that means nothing unless you've done these and you've had people monitoring your your lactate levels it feels like your blood is turned to battery acid it, it's it's one of the most uncomfortable and painful things i've ever experienced and the, the worst thing about it is that when you stop the effort it's not like when you're on a hill when you're struggling and your heart rate's at maximum and your lungs are bursting your legs are bursting as soon as you you, you could make that pain stop just by pulling over and stopping pedaling and you catch your breath quite quickly and you feel instantly better. When you're doing these lactate efforts and there's huge, you know, these high levels of lactate acidity in the blood, you stop and it actually gets worse and you feel worse and you, you, you fall off the bike, you lie on the mat, you know, you're in the fetal position and you feel more and more nauseous for the next five, 10 minutes. Then it plateaus and you just think, well, I'm, you know, I must be dying here. There must be something wrong with me. <laughs> I've never felt this ill before. And then, you know, without fail, 10 times out of 10, after 15 minutes, you just suddenly come out. It's like you've come out from underground and you suddenly feel better. Um, and, you're, and you think, right, okay, let's go for the second set. Let's do it again. And it's just your body, your body goes completely out of this homeostasis, this, this level where it's happy at. And it's, it's fighting to get itself back on an even keel. And it, when you're in that state, it just, it's absolutely miserable. And it's, it's, that's why, you know, I used to get nervous um, before these training sessions. You know, you'd be on, in the lab on your own, you'd have... You know your your coach or your the the, the sports scientist in the in the lab monitoring the session, and it's just you and him. There's nobody there. You know the numbers are only relevant to you. But I would get nervous because I knew that to make the most of the session, you've got to push yourself truly to your limit. And if you do that, it's going to be bloody awful. You're going to be in a right old state. And you know you didn't do them all year round. You would do them in blocks of maybe eight weeks or six weeks, um, leading up to a competition, a super important competition. And it would be the, the icing on top of the cake. You would do all the prep and all the building so you were able to produce these high levels of, of these high wattages that would create this damage. Um, and this was a way of then tolerating the, the byproducts of all this anaerobic exercise. So what's happening in the muscles that produces this sprinter-specific horror show? I asked Medi Cordy. Putting it very, very simply, all your energy stores, which are in your muscles, and sprinters generally have very large muscles compared to endurance riders. The energy store are being depleted and then you've pretty much got nothing left. The aerobic system is is almost null and void for most sprinters. So you're basically getting rid of every bit of energy you have and it's a massive store, so it takes a while to get rid of and you try to sort of wring every watt out of it, let's just say, or bit of energy out of it. Usually what happens after that is you kind of your body defaults to the aerobic system and kind of plateaus off and, and, and can sustainably hold that power for a certain amount of time. But sprinters virtually have 
you know, I think you'd be horrified with most sprinters aerobic power, max aerobic power. So then that's what's basically happening. Um, basically getting rid of all their energy stores and they've got no backup. <laughs> and that and that just produces that that sort of the sort of kind of sensations Chris is talking about. It's just that utter depletion. It is utter depletion and also a lot of metabolites. I mean I think yeah. Well, they're trying to correct him, and, and this is kind of a contentious bit of physiology. Lactate oh, isn't the. Wade right on in and correct him, he won't mind. It's <laughs> so a bit like um, lactic acid or lact- whatever people want to sort of use the term to describe their feeling in their muscle is not actually the source of fatigue. It's more of a reflection. Um, whereas, particularly with uh, people with such high volumes of muscle, it's just metabolites accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. And once they're kind of, <laughs> I don't know what it is, like if they look at it as a reservoir which is completely full, that's when they feel really, really, really bad. And then because the capillarization of the muscles is relatively low, it's because they have such big muscles and such poor, relatively poor aerobic systems, it takes a while for it to get out of the muscles. But once it does, it's pretty much okay. So that's pretty much the sensations he was feeling from kind of a lay physiology point of view. It's, it's so alien to anyone who's used to, to kind of the default of endurance riding. The idea, I, honestly, I hadn't really appreciated the idea that you stop doing the effort, but it keeps getting yeah. worse. Yeah, and it's, it's so that hard. That is but, frightening. Well, well, I remember, um, do you remember Jim Gladwell, who used to be a, a time trialist up in Scotland? He was the Scottish hour record holder, um, nas- national medalist, um, British national medalist on sort of 25 time trials and 10s and stuff. Really handy rider, you know, sort of international rider. And we were doing these races uh, in Manchester. I think they were called the Key League or something. It was it was like a, a regional series. They had you know brought together people and they raced for different regions. So there was we were in the Edinburgh region. There was Manchester, Edinburgh, Birmingham, London, um, and somewhere else, Cardiff. And he was riding for Edinburgh. And uh, on each week they had you know a sprint, Kieran, Kilo, Pursuit, Scratch, and Points. And he was down for the the pursuit as the pursuit specialist. And neither Craig nor I, or none of the sprinters want to do the kilo because it was just like, oh, I really don't fancy doing a kilo middle of the off season. The form isn't there to cope with that. You know, does anybody want to ride the kilo? So Jim was like, what, what's the kilo? I said, it's, well, it's, it's a thousand meters, four laps. He goes, is that it? And I said, yeah. He said, so it's just like, just like the first four laps of a pursuit. I said, well, you've got to go hard. You've got, he said, oh yeah, I'll go hard. He said, I said, you just got to absolutely smash it out the gate and then hang on for four laps. He goes, yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, give me some good gate practice before the pursuit. So he got up and to do this um, this kilo. And fair play to him, he did, he properly launched one. He went for it flat out out the gate and attacked the first lap. And then, you know, even for a tester, he started, he, he, he sort of realized after 30 odd seconds, oh my God, this is quite painful. And then he just sort of tailed off towards the end and he came in and he sort of slumped down on the ground. <laughs> and he said that, he was like, he didn't speak for a while. When eventually we got to his feet, he said, that's the hardest thing I've ever, the hardest race I've ever done. He said, you didn't tell me it was going to be that painful. <laughs> and I was like, well, why do you think we didn't want to do it? Um, but it was just, it's just something that, you know, you, you look at other sports that are comparable, you know, between a, sort of a, a minute long effort. It's just too long to sprint the whole way, but you have to, you have to sprint, you have to commit at the start. Otherwise you're not going to do a fast time. So look at the 400 meter hurdles in athletics, that type of effort. The difference is in, in a kilo or in, in cycling, you've got this much greater mass. You've got the bike and you've got yourself and you've got one gear to accelerate up to speed. So you've got to commit so much more in that first, you've got to front load the effort to the first 
quarter of the race and then then you're hanging on so the, the power trace isn't if you go on a static bike you can do a minute effort you can do a sustained effort um, and you can get a, a greater average of power but if you do it on a, on a track like that you wouldn't reach a high enough peak speed and you wouldn't go fast so you have to attack the start produce a massive spike of power and therefore create a lot of lactate a lot of byproducts and then your power just drops off in the last 10 seconds you're just almost following the cranks you're in such a, a whole world of pain but the other difference is if Jim does a kilo or I did a kilo, because, I mean, I never did one in competition, obviously, because that would just have been embarrassing. But, I mean, I did enough sort of standing 4Ks in my life. And the best I, the best I ever did on an otherwise empty track was about a 108. Um, open, practice, open practice in Manchester National Championships one year with 200 other people on the track, I managed a standing 102. But that was in, a mighty, right. vor- that was in <laughs> yeah. a mighty vortex of yeah, wind. Dragged right. <laughs> But it's interesting because you, you get people who come in endurance athletes who do come in and try sprinting or, you know, I'm thinking about, um, I've forgotten, there's a rider who was an endurance rider on the track um, about 15 years ago and she she was quick on the roads and sort of quick on the track but but an endurance rider and she wasn't, she was going to basically, she wasn't going to make it as an endurance athlete and she thought, you know what, I could be a sprinter here and she'd, she'd seen what we did in training and a bit like you had thought, well, this doesn't look that hard. You know, they're sitting around most of the time just talking talking nonsense, telling stories, having a laugh. I could do that. And she she had a go. And she's like, well, they're only doing four efforts or six efforts. Well, I'll do 10 or I'll do 12. Because if, if you do more, then that's better, obviously. So so she was doing way more volume. But again, because without, without realising it, you can't do... She wasn't able to hit these high peaks and she wasn't able to really elicit this change, this physiological change that you get from doing true maximal effort. She was doing close to maximal, but not actual maximal efforts. And she didn't improve. And it was, it was so hard to explain. And the penny kind of dropped after a while and she changed her training methods and she improved. But it's, you always think more is better. And to a certain degree it is. But you, as long as you, you can do as many as you can up to a point where then the quality starts to, to suffer. So it's about doing as much as you can, but still producing a true maximal effort. It always really strikes me that if you if you talk to an endurance rider two or three minutes after they've come off the track from a race, they're pretty much ready to go again. Mm-hmm. They might not be quite as quick, but if you if you pulled Ed Clancy off the track, gave him five minutes on someone who ran another team pursuit, he pretty much could. <laughs> you, Ed's, Ed's right. actually maybe not the best example because he's quite <laughs> yeah, a sprinty. He's, he's, a he's quite a sprinty well, so endurance he, rider. Ed's got a special mentality. If you do the same to a sprinter who's just come off the track after, just say, winning like a tough match sprint, and there's only 200 meters, let's call it 200 meters of maximal effort in that, take them an hour, an hour and a half, two hours to get over it. It's they go, you can go so deep. You could, you could t- half an hour, you could get back to doing it. So if you had a half hour break, depends what you're doing. If it's a team sprint, man three, then you need an hour. Um, you know, we had three rides in London in the space of, I think it was an hour and a half or just under two hours, and that was. One of the hardest things I ever had to do, and you think, really, it's just three laps, and and you think, well, surely you just train for that, and you get fitter, and you get, you, you're able to absorb that that volume of training, but all that happens is that the fitter you get, or the, the more powerful you get, the more damage you can do. So, almost, you know, instead of thinking, well, you know, let's say you have to cycle to work each day, and you've never cycled before, and you get a bike, and it's the first six months is, is really hard, and then you get a bit fitter, and then before long, you know, you're able to cycle to work, and you can get there without being covered in sweat. But the difference is that, you know, if you're trying to get quicker and quicker and quicker, you're always striving for more power, for more effort, 
so that you you know as as um, as was it Greg Lamont said you never it never gets easier you just go faster um, you know so yeah it's certainly it's understanding the difference or what what your body goes through and you see riders that are constantly sick riders like Phil Hines um, you know a double Olympic gold medalist he will throw up regularly in training and sometimes at competition you'll see them getting interviewed after a race and, and there'll be team sprint there might be two of them there and there'll be a third one missing you know, wonder where wonder where Jason is or wonder where Phil is nine times out of ten they'll be behind the camera throwing up into a poly bag so sorting themselves out and then coming around the corner and it's it's not because they're not fit it's not because well if they did a bit more training they'd be fine it's it's just because of the nature of that of that effort and it's so hard to explain it's always it's always maximal yeah it's maximal and only if you're if you're a true sprinter if you have a high percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers that you're genetically born with if you have that capacity to do that damage then then you understand but if you don't then you never really quite get get to that whole world of pain there's another question here we've talked about training and some of the unpleasant side effects of sprint sessions but what are sprinters trying to achieve from a physiological point of view what's the determinant of success in endurance riding we hear a lot and to be honest, probably more than we should, about maximal oxygen uptake or VO2 max as a key metric. But what's the equivalent in sprinter land? Putting it very, very bluntly, and again, take this all with a pinch of salt, max power or peak power, as uh, Chris Hoy uh, was referring to there, is the biggest determinant, physiological determinant, um, of sprinting performance. So if everything stays equal, so let's just say body mass, rolling resistance, drag, equipment, skin suits. If your peak power increases, your sprinting ability increases or improves. Now, people will say, and rightly so, well, if you're going from A to B, why don't you just do average power and just measure that? You are absolutely right to think that. However, generally speaking, peak power is a data point that can be easily sort of uh, um, extrapolate or, or taken out from a SRM or a power meter or something and accordingly if you're measuring something for 10 seconds or 7 seconds or whatever the, the time course may be uh, if you have a higher peak it's likely to be higher anyway so it's just an easier way of deducing and kind of summarizing uh, sprinting ability so okay we, we, we know that works and in particular um, for standing starts, it's it's peak power to mass. And again, I'm dumbing that down a bit, but it is. And for flying 200 time trials, which is kind of more your kind of more the endurance language. Oh, oh it really isn't. But... <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it, it's 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 you know max power to drag, if you want to put it that way. Um, okay, and then so what determines that? And I think that the, the easiest way of putting it is like all my years of research is, and, and there's a paper about to be published and a paper that has been published by my good self from, I think it, it is available online, but we looked at max torque or actually we assessed the torque cadence relationship. So what's power is the, uh, is, is torque over a single pedal revolution multiplied by angular velocity or in cycling languages cadence um if so yeah and because there is no aerobic system pretty much there are the two main things we look at now when we did a 
peak power test, which is basically from zero RPM to 180 RPM in about six to seven seconds. I looked at um, endurance riders from the track. So they're still technically sprinters on the road um, versus sprinters on the track. And the only, so um, I looked at power, max torque and max cadence. Now, the, the, in power terms, the, the obviously a big difference in max power or peak power between the two groups. Oddly, there was no difference in max cadence between the averages of the groups. The only real difference was maximum torque production. So in other words, how much torque you can produce. And this is quite a, an interesting thing. And again, I'd love to know what Chris Hoy's opinion of this is. Like back in the day, or whatever, or, you know, when he was young, it was always spin to win. Like, you know, how quickly can you get the 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 the, the, the light gear around? Whereas now, if you watch, it was um, you know, they're grinding massive gears compared to, to 10, 15 years, or even five years ago. And it's simply because the, I think the the whole kind of uh, peloton or, or or you know track cycling, track sprint cycling group is kind of cottoned onto that. The it's it's talk that differentiates um, uh, the two groups. So basically, just get stronger, and the stronger you get, the, the bigger gear you can, you can go on. It's not just sprinters that are changing. For years, the team pursuit was an event that was getting more and more sprint oriented, with team pursuiters hitting some very big numbers, to the extent that it was becoming really quite difficult for a roadie to slot into a team pursuit squad. But that's a trend that seems to have reversed in the last Olympic cycle getting more and more difficult to identify the stereotypes of track riders, something that Sir Chris has noticed. Just to say that it's quite, I know it's a bit of a digress, but it's really interesting looking at the times that so Team Pursuit now is going, they're going so fast, they're doing, you know, 41s, 42s, 341, 342. And speaking to the, the team and speaking to all the riders, the kit is now, they're, they're, they're now the kit and also the positions they're riding in are so efficient that the riders aren't getting the rest on the wheel. So in the past, you know, you would you look at your the power trace of a team pursuiter, and it would be 13 seconds of effort, and then you know 26 seconds of or sorry, there's four of them in there. You know, 39 seconds of effective recovery. You know, you're still doing 60k an hour, but you're recovering on the wheel because they're punching a big hole. But they're now cutting through the air and causing such a, a minimal disturbance to it relative to what they used to be. That Ed was saying, and some of the guys were saying that they weren't recovering on the wheel, and the, the power trace is a lot flatter. It's not this up and down. It's more like almost a almost a three and a half minute effort, and and that is that is why you're seeing riders like um, Filippo Ghana coming in, big the big strong road guys that are able to soak that up and do slightly longer efforts. Whereas five ten years ago, it was more of a kilo rider type event. That's the way it was going. It's now going back towards the real strongmen. Well, actually, I think they're getting more and more diverse because track cycling is is um, is getting further and further outreach or access through talent transfer and stuff. I think if you look, um, there was actually a, a paper from the, the very early noughties or late nineties that was just kind of trying to plug them in of like, this is what a sprinter looks like, this is what an endurance rider looks like, and there was one that I think came to review. In Tokyo, which I had to reject, but I looked at the abstract and I'd look at the numbers, and they've completely diversified sprinters. But um, I think more and more that we're getting different sizes, so they're actually getting taller. And if you look at like the 
Friedrich, um, she's like tall. Um, Kelsey Mitchell from Canada, she's quite tall. And there were traditionally kind of small pocket rockets who were quite stocky, whereas now they're kind of different sizes and, and, and big sizes. And actually you can see like some of the philosophies of different programs. So for example, Great Britain traditionally look for power to mass because they, um, when they select their riders, because they view the team sprint as a, uh, or, or the standing start as a, something that's really important to them. And that's a good way of measuring it, I guess, from a talent transfer point of view. Whereas other nations just pick and choose people who just come over. So the Dutch that I work for, you know, they're, they're a bit bigger um, and there's a different kind of philosophy they have. So a, a, a sprinter generally is just more muscular than an endurance rider, generally. Um, yeah. And just drives bigger gears. Different muscle fiber types? No. I, I, uh, I, okay, um, you might have some people uh, not agree with me, but cycling is an interesting one because it's one of the only sports, and technically rowing you can gear up and gear down with the inboard and outboard. But the other linear sports, energetic sports, like swimming and running, your kind of your your cadence comes naturally to you, or you kind of set your own cadence, I guess. Cycling is the only one where you can change your gear uh, or your cadence uh, to however you want. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, uh, someone with more fast switch fibers can potentially gear down and kind of use the higher speed and the higher powers, but someone with less fast switch fibers um, can just gear up and not have to use the explosive contractions that the fast switch fiber does. So cycling actually, or sprint cycling, you know, it's kind of, that's why I'm saying it's diversified because people... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market using the the you know, what cycling can give you to their advantage chris um you started off um when I first knew you, sort of 2000, 2004, you were a team sprinter slash kilo rider. In the kind of, in the grand traditions of British cycling, having taken the events apart and gone, right, what can we do maths on? Let's find some events that we can control. We know everything that's going to happen. That was terrific. Won the world championships, won the Olympics, all going splendidly. Then they dropped the kilo from the Olympics and you took up Karen riding and max sprinting from kind of, and in a relatively short period of time, because you I mean, I know I'd seen you ride kind of max sprints at revolutions and things like that, but it wasn't something you really did internationally and same for the Karen. So you had to take those events up as a grown up, as a serious respected rider. So you're not coming through as a kid, riding them, learning them, riding at kind of transitional development levels. How do you set about 
turning yourself into obviously you've got the engine we know you've got the power but how do you set about getting involved in that which is so it's physical it's tactical and it's very very unpredictable you yeah you need to take that apart and figure out how to do well, it it kind of worked against everything or went against everything that i liked about the kilo and the team sprint um i like the fact that i knew that if i did the work and i you know there were, i knew there were all these variables and i knew that i could minimize them all and I would, I would have a very clear idea in my head of the kind of performance I was due to do before competition that I knew I was capable of based on the conditions and my form leading up to it. And I knew roughly what my rivals were going to do. So you had, a, you would go in knowing pretty closely what you were going to get. And and I liked, I didn't like surprises. I didn't like having too many variables. And and that was suddenly changed. And I was 30 when I got the call, 29 um, going on 30, when I found out that the games, you know, the Olympic program was changing and that, that Kilo wasn't going to be part of it in Beijing. And I guess it was that feeling of, well, I've now, I've achieved more than I could ever have imagined. You know, I became Olympic champion in Athens. I was world champion, Commonwealth champion. I ticked all the boxes. I was nearly 30. You know, I could have just gone, well, that, that was a great career and it likes Life's tough and things happen and, and you know, the, the it's not my fault. <clears throat> the games have changed now, but, you know, thank you very much. But I, it was really down to the fact that, that London had just won the, the bid for 2012. And, I, and that was the big draw for me was keeping going to try and make it to London. And I thought, well, if it had been anywhere else, there was a good chance I might just have said, you know what, I'm happy with what I've got. Thank you very much. But it was just that one last thing that I really wanted to, to experience. And... You know, I sat down with the coaches and it was really down to the fact that we had great coaches and people with great expertise. Jan van Eyden, one of the, the most respected sprint tacticians in the business, he was he was recruited pretty much for that main reason, for, for turning us from being this this one-dimensional time trial um, sprint nation into to winning the Kieran in the sprint. And we had had some success. He had riders like Craig McLean, um, Jamie Staff even, he'd won the, Q, the Kieran world title in Athens. Um, with very little experience at all um, prior to that point. So it was like, well, do you know what? Let's let's give it a go. And I, I had to accept that or for, there were sort of steps that I went to. So first of all, it was putting to bed the kilo and understanding that this is this is not going to happen. Um, you know, it's not going to come back. It doesn't matter how much you, you complain about it or how many people sign a petition or whatever. You know, th this is set in stone now. And, you know, I went to try and break the world record in Bolivia and I did my last world title and I kind of put the event to bed and said, right, that's it, done now. I've, you know, I've, I've given everything to this event and it's gone. And I, I made a rule to not not look back, to not keep thinking about what if and, and, you know, wouldn't it be great if and isn't it unfair that and none of that. We're looking forward. So set the new goal, um, assemble the troop around you, pick the people that you have trust in that you believe can give you the, the expertise to make that transition. Um, and then become a student and, you know, not, you know, you're starting, except that you're going to be starting at the bottom of a whole new ladder and you, you're, you are Olympic champion, but not in this event. So you've got to behave as if you are the apprentice and you're, you're learning all the, the new skills. And, and I got the guys to really simplify it for me because I was, you know, it's quite a, you look at the Kieran and it can be quite overwhelming with the number of variables, the number of different tactics, the number of things that can happen in a race. How on earth do you break it down? Or in a sprint as well, and and you know basically Jan would would break it down into two rides, front from the front or from the back. So you know this is what happens if you're leading out. This is what happens if you're at the back. And there and there would be two or three golden rules about you know the gap you're creating or the height you have, um, or how you how you can initiate the tactics and and impose your tactics on the race. Simple things. And I had to do homework, and I used to sit and analyze videos. So I'd go home at the end of training, 
and you know you have Scott Gardner or Joffe or whoever the you know the, the sports performance analyst would be at the time would, would would give you access to these thousands of hours of video footage of your rivals and I would sit and watch them and you know learn what made them successful and I would look at the data and it would say you know 80% of the time if Burgan is leading with a lap and a half to go he will win the race so you don't want to let him get to the front you get in front of him before you know lap and a half or um, you know a wang he wants to be stuck on your wheel so you know you've got to keep the pace low until as late as you can or try and out drag him or you know different different tactics to beat different riders and then the, the third or the final part of the jigsaw was playing to your strength and realizing that when there's change there's opportunity so for me my big strength was that I could go I wasn't that quick at accelerating but I had a good top end speed and I also had a good length of sprint so why don't you just play to your strengths control the race take it on from the front and the Kieran in particular nobody would be willing to go from the gun when the bike swung off everybody would be looking around at each other waiting you know maybe two laps to go maybe a lap and a half to go they'd all start to make their move and I thought well if I can get to the front and string them out and just not sprint but be sitting at 95 percent I'll be going too fast for them to then step out and just ride past I'll see them coming and often you, you, you know you, you try it and behind they start going two, three, four abreast. They're swinging around and they make chaos for each other. Meanwhile, you're at the front just hammering it, you know, and a kind of rolling 500 pace. And it's and it's, I won the first time I did that. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. This is this is pretty good. So I, I just started doing that race after race. And it was really boring and really kind of obvious what was going to happen. But people seemed to let me do it. And I did that all the way up to, to Beijing, um, won the gold medal. And it was only really after Beijing that other countries started thinking, hang on a minute. If we want to win the goal, we're going to have to get in front of them, and that that was when that was when things got tougher because I had to start using a few tactics and um, you know get my elbows out and get involved in the the kind of the uh, the physical side of it. But it was yeah, it was a it was a and then you look back at Beijing, standing there with three gold medals at the end of the competition, and you realise that what was the worst possible scenario in two thousand and five to get that phone call to say your your Olympic event has been dropped, you're not going to be able to defend your title. Um, you know, that was like the end of the world. And then, you know, but out of that, I would never, out of choice, have changed events. So I would never have gone for three events unless I'd been forced to. But then I was with three gold medals. So I think it was, a, it was a good life lesson for me to learn that, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of change. And when change comes, if you if you take it on the front foot, if you look for opportunity, create opportunity, then, you know, things, it might actually be the best thing that could happen to you. I love, I love the detail with which, you can go into things like a match sprint and the scenarios of, you know, from the back, from the front, if he does this, I do that. If I do that, he does. I, I talked to Katie Archibald not long ago for, for the podcast. And one of the things she said that they discovered by watching a lot of videos was that in the Madison, the team that is on the front at the bell, 80% of the time that team wins the sprint, mm -hmm. which is kind of counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you just put that in front of me, I said, oh no, you're never going to want to be on the front of the yeah. bell. You want to be second yeah. or third wheel at the bell. That, that's how that's going to work. And it's just, I love the idea of following the data, mm. following the, let's just watch what happens. Let's go back. Years ago, around about the time we were talking about earlier, I was staying in you know, that squad house in Manchester in the back street behind the velodrome. Elk Street, yeah. Jinx's house, yeah. Yeah. Um, the crack house I is it was <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of slightly frightening. That was, um, that was part of the charm. Yeah. yeah, I stayed there with uh, a young guy from the Isle of Man who I didn't know and nobody was paying much attention to who turned out to be Mark Cavendish. It was just for a couple of nights he and I shared the house. And he spent the entire time, 
I can't remember what I wanted to watch on TV, but he spent the entire time watching videos of old um, sprint, uh, road road stage sprint finishes over and over and over and saying, right, here's Eric Zabel. He's, he's 13th wheel. What happened to him? Because he was nowhere. But he was 13th wheel and he should have done better. So what, what, what? And, we're all. and then he'd wind it back and go, okay, the guy who was fifth, where was he at a kilometre to go? And just again and again and again. And it's, it's amazing what you can learn if you just work your way through. You've got to be obsessive about it. You've got to live it. You've got to love it. It's got to be your passion. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't think about it all the time out of choice, it's not because like, oh God, I should be doing my homework. It's like, you, you, you're driven by it and it's, it's all you think about. It's all you want to do when you, you know, it's like when you're a kid at school, desperate to get home so you can then get, get, change, you know, change your kit and get out on the bike and, and you've been thinking about riding your bike all day and that, now you're doing it and you do it as long as you can until your mum calls you in and it's, I think it's carrying that it's through. Just, you, you, you kind of still need to be like yeah, that at the age of 30 or 32 or 33. And Cam is a great example of that. Somebody who, you know, he, he clearly still loves what he does. And you, you, the passion that he has for it, the, the fact he cares about it so much. And, you know, I, I think people, our fans want to see that. They want to see their, their heroes as engaged as them, or at least as engaged as them. They want to know that it means a huge amount when they win and also that they're devastated when they don't win. And I think Cav... Cab has such a great following, not just because of his success, but because of the way he wears his heart on his sleeve. And he does clearly get upset when he doesn't win, but he loves it when he does win. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, 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 I've never heard that story before. But I'm glad that um, yeah that Cav, Cav was a stato and a, and a little obsessive like me. He, uh, I, I'm involved in the um, Irish track coaching setup. Um, really, I'm, a cons- I'm mainly an aero consultant. I'm not there much of the time. I was with them in Mallorca a couple of years ago, um, training on the track in Palma. And Cav wandered in with a track bike over his shoulder, apropos of nothing. He just he decided he'd need to do some track training. So he booked himself he booked himself a plane to Mallorca, got a bike, just arrived, no mechanic, no, no team, no nothing. Just came in and said, ah, oh, brilliant. You do your Madison training. And we went, yeah. And he said, can I join in? So there's our guys doing Madison training for, you know, two or three hour session with Cav on the track. And the pleasure he was getting from it was just so visible. There was something really, and his career's not going brilliantly at that point. He's, you know, he's been ill. He's trying to get back from that. And he's suddenly just, ah, some guys doing Madison training. I'm, I'm all over that. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. I think the trouble is that, you, and the thing I worry about a little bit about the, the way that cycling has gone in the last few years, and it's it's you know there's pros and cons to it. It's the data, it's the science, it's the numbers, it's the fact that every little you know 14, 15 year old kid that wants to be successful has got power cranks. They know their FTP. That it's all about the numbers, and the numbers are important. And you know we're just chatting about the importance of data. You know you look at something like a Madison mm. or a Kieran, and you think something that surely data is irrelevant because it's all about you know riding you know intuition and tactics. But you're right, data is central to everything. And yet, you know, I, I, you hope that the younger generation don't get too het up on numbers at, at uh, you know, at too young an age. And yet when, you know, like you're saying there, Cav gets to, still has the joy of riding their bike and just wants to, to, to experience the thrill of a Madison session, you know, a training session behind the bike, chasing other folk, you know, going out there and yeah. having fun. And I, I see with, with in motorsport as well, a lot of the, you know, the, the, the racing drivers that you assume would just be, a car as a tool to do a job, um, you know, it's in the same way that the bikes are for us. They've driven countless millions of laps in racing. You know, they, all they want to do is when they finish their race is to go home and do something else. 
but they all are, are motorsport fans and they all enjoy driving their cars on track. You know, they could be at track day with their own personal car. They could be interested in what car you're driving. And it, to me, it, you have you have to love what you do, no matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether you're a musician, a sports person, a, an yeah. actor, you know, no matter what your line of work podcaster. is. A podcaster. Exactly. <laughs> if you love what you do, you work harder at it and you give it more. And I think that, that shines through. Motorsport comes into this because, annoyingly for the rest of us, cycling isn't the only sport in which a Chris has competed at an elite level. Rather like one of those chaps from the 1930s who competed in three different Olympic sports and owned their own aeroplane along with most of Berkshire, he's also a racing driver and has raced a Le Mans 24-hour. So, are there any skills that transfer between track sprinting and motor racing? There's very little, like physically, it's, you know, they talk about how physically fit the drivers are. They are physically fit, um, but it's not not like, you know, it's not the fittest driver will win the race. The, the fitness is required for the, the faster your car you're in, the more lateral G-forces there are, the more you need to be able to, to resist that for a, you know, a two-hour race or a 24-hour race if you're doing Le Mans. But it's not, it's not the be-all and end-all. Physical fitness is a part of the jigsaw. Um, so basically, it's a whole new skill. Um to learn and and it's like learning a musical instrument that you only get to play once or twice a month because you can't you can't just go out you know i've gone from training five or six hours a day five six you know days a week all year round and to get better i just trained more and, and worked harder to being told well we've got a race on this day and we might get one test day before that on that track and you think well how on earth am i going to get better and it's like well you know go to the simulator you, you know do a sim session and even then, you might only do two or three sim sessions before you get to this track that you've never been to in your life before. So, so much of it is learning on the hoof and, and every single lap counts. And the, the great drivers are able to do a lap of a track. And, you know, like at the weekend in Spa, the Formula One where it was raining, the great drivers will be able to find where, the, you know, they'll try something in a corner, they'll break a little bit later, or they'll try a different line and notice there's a bit of grip there or there isn't grip there. And they'll immediately log that, even though there's, you know, 20 corners on the track and there's 101 things happening, they can remember that. And the next time they'll, they'll change their approach or they'll, if it worked, they'll do the same thing again. And it, I guess it's, it's brain capacity and it's, it's utilizing, freeing up your brain capacity for these things and not having to think about the driving. Whereas as a, as a you know, middle-aged bloke taking up a new, new skill, you are using every you know, neuron <laughs> trying, to, trying to drive the car as well as you can physically, you know, because there's, there's a technique to doing it that you've got to learn. And so I'm, th I'm still thinking about breaking points and throttle application and how you bleed off the brake and all these basic things that these guys don't even have to consider because it's it's just a it's a skill they've done since they were five years of age. So yeah, it's a, the, the, I'd say the only real thing that you can transfer is the ability to focus and the ability to block out distraction um, because if you start thinking about the fact that that concrete wall is just there and you're going through the you know a, a corner at Le Mans at 160 miles an hour and you think if, if I go off here and hit that wall this is going to be you know a serious a serious accident here you know you could really hurt yourself you'd destroy the car as soon as you think about it it'll happen so you have to be able to focus on only the things that you have control over yeah and nothing else well to be fair in 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 Karen landing face first in the track at 65 kilometers an hour is never very no, far away. exactly and, and I, <laughs> that, that's the thing that's what you carry on is is the focus on you know, all the things are out of my control. I'm not going to consider that. All I have to do is 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 focus. You know, when you're mountain biking and you you're going down a single track, and if you look at that tree root or if you look at that rock and think, I don't want to hit that, you'll hit it. You look at where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. 
and and that that that's it's the same thing. And um, but but maybe the other thing I could think of is when you're in the heat of battle. Say you're you're battling with one other guy, and it's it's been lasting. You know, gone on for maybe two or three laps or maybe longer, and you're you're sort of nose to tail and you can't get past him. You can then start to use a bit of race psychology, and you can you can almost try and force them to make mistakes, and 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 or even. Yeah, basically put them on the back foot by dictating, you know, forcing them to do something to respond to you. So if you're always responding to them, then you're in the back foot. But if you can force them to react in the same way in a sprint or a Kieran, yeah, then you're you're in the hot seat. So it's it's, and it's you're you're in control. That kind of confidence just to sort of try and you're trying to just ha- hassle them and, yeah. and distract them and put them off there. You know, you you're basically trying to force them to make a mistake or to to open the door and let you make that move that you can then get in and get in front of them but it's certain tracks are easier than others to pass on some tracks are almost impossible so um yeah that's a skill that if you can you can use your race you, you can almost imagine the guy in the car in front and sort of, you can you can almost imagine their personality particularly if you know who they are as well you know that you can you can get them hassled or you can if they're a hot head you can get them to to react and if they if they lose concentration that's when you can make your move and get past them that sounds a lot like a match sprint. Mm. I, mean, I sometimes think it would be really nice to do events that are too short to spend any time thinking about. Um, mm. Because if you ride, you know, if you ride a 40 kilometer time trial, there's a lot of time to kind of settle down and think, this isn't going very well. <laughs> no, I'm not convinced about this at all. I did that hill too hard. I did that. I quite like the, but, but I don't know if the mental pressure for a really short event ramps up much more beforehand yeah i think it does i think i mean i there, there's pros and cons for every type of event but the, the psychological stress going in knowing that this is this is something you know you come to an olympic final this is the one thing you know you've done all these world cups all these grand prix all the world championships qualifying you've know, done commonwealth games they're all really important races but this is the one and this is the one that matters and, and people will forget every other race you've you've had over the last four years but they'll remember this one. If you win this, this is a career-defining moment. And you re- recognize that within that, you have a split second. There will be a, a moment in that race. You don't know when it's going to be. And that's the other hard part. You know, you, you line up in the start line and you think this it could be off the start line. You could get Forsterman trying to launch one, you know, three laps to go in the sprint. And that could be the moment. So you can't, it's not like you're going, well, okay, we'll ease into the first lap. And then the race starts after, you know, the first one. It could happen as soon as the whistle goes and you roll off the start it's live and it's this incredible tension and, and the, the understanding that this you're in this gladiatorial moment, it's you against the other guy. <clears throat> You've got every single pair of eyes in the Belgium watching you. There's nowhere to hide. If you make a mistake, it's very, very public. It's very visible. You're either a winner or a loser. You know, you can't just come second and go, oh, that was well done. You know, it's, it's like you're the race. There's a clear winner and a clear loser in every single race. And, and the pressure from that, and knowing as well that when you get towards the end of your career, gold is all you want. You know, it's not like when you first start out and you get a bronze medal, you might scrape a bronze and that would be an absolutely outstanding result. For when you've been at the top, there's only one way to go, you know, so you, you've, you've got to try and hang in there and keep winning. So you, you, you feel like to justify all the hard work, it has to be a gold medal. So there's huge pressure. But that I think the pressure and the fact you don't ever know you're going to win until you cross the line as well means that when you do, it's it's the intensity of emotion. Everything just rushes in in one split second at the end of the race. And, you know, the moments, I, there's so many things I miss from being um, a professional full-time athlete. But 
I think it is those those split seconds as, as you cross the line and, and the crowd respond to, to you winning a sprint by you know a tyre's width at Manchester or London with a home crowd behind you. It was it's like a drug. It's just this feeling of like wow, you ride round and you, you sort of as you're sweeping past and sort of waving at the crowd, you see just they see your faces all smiling at you and it's and the noise. It's it's quite a yeah, it's an addictive experience and I think that's that was one of the things that really drove me on was that to, to kind of feed that that feeling. Does it get harder or does it get easier as you work your way through? You've won one Olympic gold medal. You've won another one, another two. Because I can see, on the one hand, I can see you might think, well, I've achieved too much, the pressure's off. Or you might think, I've achieved too much, the pressure's even greater than it was because I've got to keep doing this. Everyone's different, but I think it's much harder to maintain success than to get there. When you're when you're improving, you're buoyed by the, the, the fact you're getting better and you're on this upward trajectory and and it's exciting and then you win it and there's this huge elation you've done it and then there's the feeling of right i want to do this again so i have got the winning formula this is how I, this is how i trained to get there all i've got to do is do it again and i will get the same result but what, what you're not realizing is that all your rivals are catching up and they're just going to rate they're going to keep going and try and raise the bar so what you do if you try and do the same thing you're only going to get the same performance that won't necessarily be enough to win again so you've got to find a way to improve so you've got to work out what worked for you and but work out what maybe could have been better and tweak it and change it and that's the real art you know the, the, the science as well but it's as Ian Dyer would say it's not not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. you not don't change everything for the sake of it you keep the good stuff but you tweak the things that maybe could be better and it's but it's so hard to do that and to have the confidence that actually you know, I, we can change this, and we are going to have a bit of a gamble here. Although you're the top of the world, we still have to risk and, and you know try try new things and change the way that you approach your training. As much for your own mental freshness, because if you do the same thing all the time year after year, it can get really, um, you know, it can get really stale. But the, I think the hard thing is just coping with being the target and having a target on your back and being the champion and having you know knowing that as I said before, there's only one way down. You know, there's only one way. You can either stay where you are or you're going to drop down the rankings. So um, it does de definitely get tougher. This is one of the hardest bits of bike racing. You can't just find a system and stick to it because everyone is getting better all the time. When I was racing, I reckoned I needed to find about 5% from somewhere every season just to stay in the same place relative to everybody else. Some of it can come from tech, but some of it still has to come from the athlete. I asked Mehdi for a coach's perspective on it. I'm always trying to freshen things up, look for new things, um, new new ways of training to engage it. And I think I think athletes. I, I mean, this is my first Olympic experience, um, and you know, being in 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 sort of the eye of the storm and stuff. And it's quite intense. And the last thing you want to do, for me anyway, is just copy paste. That would kill me, like um, stuff. So I was already, I, mean, I don't know what other people's experience of Tokyo is, but I was actually kind of twiddling my thumbs a bit because everything's done. You know what the rider's going to do. You've been a thousand times like the tactics, the gears, um, the race day. There are no projects to finish for Tokyo because you're there. Um, and we had everything sorted out. So I was already sort of trying to formulate stuff. So, I mean, we've already had discussions of like, we cannot st stay the same and I'd rather make a mistake 
and reaffirm that what we were doing was the only way to go about it, then, then, um, then just doing the same and sort of boring the life out of people. Um, I think also as well for me, um, I, I think riders like it and I like it when you're sort of investigating new things and new equipment and new stuff. And I just, to be honest, I just love that sort of stuff because you get the riders involved, you get their feedback. And in the end, like they believe in it and you believe in it. And the training sessions too, you're like, yeah, I'm thinking of this. You know, there we go. Well, should we tighten this bit up here? So for me, like it's, I, I can never really understand anyone who just goes copy paste because we won. It's, you know, and therefore we're going to do more of the same. I think definitely there should be at least a process where you try and explore other things and go, yeah, maybe more of the same was the right thing, so we'll just stick to that rather than just look, let's basically what I'm saying is you've got to be brave and you've got to take a risk when the opportunity presents itself or else I'll be bored. I'm trying to watch my language, but I'll be very bored. It always seems nerve wracking if you are in the position where you've won something, you're the champion to say, right, we've got to change some things because that you know this work. If one thing to say, right, I, I got the silver, I got the bronze, I've got to catch Chris. What am I going to do to change that? If you're the guy who won the gold to say, right, this worked, that didn't, let's change this. And even the fact that from, from year to year, I, I mean, I must admit, I don't know if it's quite the same on the sprint side, but on the endurance side, there's something to be said for changing training from year to year just because you blunt the stimulus. If you do the same thing every year, you end up being good at the training, not good at the yeah, event. No, it's the same, same for sprinting, definitely. And I think I think it's it's understanding that some people come off the track and go, well, that that is the that was the best performance I could ever do. When I was the opposite, I would come away and go, you know, I might have just won the gold medal, but I go, actually, you know, that that could have been improved. I, we could be looking more at the back end or the technique at the gate or my position. Now you look back now and you realise the positions, you know, are absolutely dreadful. I mean, you look at, you know, what we thought was aerodynamic and what we, you know, the, the kind of, I mean, I, the hard thing is that if you establish a technique or a riding position, it's a bit like learning a golf swing at a young age. If you get into bad habits, it's very hard to change. And my default setting in the sprint was just to open my elbows out. And, you know, the last 50 metres, you pull yourself forward on the nose of the saddle, the elbows come out and you open up, you're like a, like a parachute. And it's, you know, and that's the, the point where you've got to be as aero and as smooth and, and as, you know, as streamlined as possible. And, you know, I look back now and realise I could have knocked chunks off my time by by paying more attention to, to aerodynamics and getting a you know a young sprinter into the sport that's one of the first things you've got to focus on now is getting them into an efficient position that they can still get the power through the pedals in um, but yeah loads loads of things that you I think as long as you were you, you never started to believe the hype and think you're better than you were as long as you kept that that element of keep your feet on the ground realize that you're you're, you're always beatable you're not invincible um, if you believe that hype, if you have, you know, the Father Christmas syndrome that, you know, if you, if you, once, all you've got to do is get beaten once. If you think you're invincible and you lose one race, then that, that whole belief system is gone. You know, as soon as you, you know, you, you find out once that you're told that Father Christmas doesn't exist, then you can't go back to going, no, I believe in him now. It's like, well, you know, you, you can't, you can't, you can't change that <laughs> mindset. So, so yeah, you have to, you, you have to always believe you're beatable. And the only way you won't get beaten is if you get everything absolutely perfect. So that was what drove me on, was almost the, the insecurity of knowing that I'm not invincible and I have to work incredibly hard every single day. And I, even if I do everything right, 
I could still lose this race. So you never had complacency. You never went in believing you were going to win. You go in believing that you've done everything right and you're ready to give the best performance, but you never know if it's going to be enough to win the gold until you cross the line. So Chris is one of the few athletes who has redefined their event. If you're a track sprinter today, well, at least to some extent, you're doing it the way he did it. Across two Olympic cycles, he was the benchmark. Of all the people I know in cycling, Sir Chris might be the most dedicated. I have never heard of him dismissing something that might make him go faster without at least considering it properly. He's never cared if it wasn't how anyone else did it, or if it looked funny, or if somebody somewhere had tried it in 1993 and didn't like it. He was calm, methodical and dedicated in a way that you can only be if, as he says, you love what you do. He's also one of the few athletes that when I was racing I would use as a reference point, even if he was from a completely different discipline. In fact, I think it probably helped that his racing was so different from mine. If I was trying to work out what I was doing, what compromises I was or wasn't making, I'd ask, what would Chris do? And it always helped. Thanks to Sir Chris Hoy and to Medi Cordy for talking to me for the show this time. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks as ever to Cycling Weekly for supporting the podcast. You just heard a stripped media production.